Listening to Rocket Radio. This show is being broadcasted live from KDRT 95.7 in Davis, California. That there was Summer in the City by the Love and Spoonful for this week's segment on the Summer Song of the Week. That's right, every week tune into Rocket Radio at 5.30 on Tuesdays, and we're going to play a summer song because, yeah, I mean, it's summer. What else are you going to do? So that was Summer in the City by the Love and Spoonful, and that was the summer song for this week. What a jam, am I right? So we were not in the studio this past week because it was 4th of July, Independence Day. There were fireworks. There were barbecues. It happened. It was a it was a swell time, but I actually wasn't in Davis for this event. I was traveling with some friends. We hit the road, and me and some friends went down to San Diego for like five days, and during the 4th of July, we, you know, saw the fireworks explode over the, the hills on the in the suburbs of San Diego having a a good time with that. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about this trip and the fun times that it included in a second, but we got to talk about fireworks for a second, and this song right here is Fireworks by Watsky.
hard to be living. You gotta play the cards you were given. You think it's simple, but it isn't. It's tougher now than breaking out of Shawshank prison. And as you hit in your prime, people say you've been committing a crime. But I won't quit till I'm home. I'll chip the limestone a bit at a time. Wait! I'm the palest pale, middle class straight white male. I won't have an hour by the day I fail. Cause if I ever went to jail, mom would pay my bail. And I. Heartbeat. Mom and dad are giving me a lot more than a pat on the back. And I gotta thank her for loving me from the moment I was trapped in a Volvo car seat. When I needed a pep talk, I couldn't remember direct shop. Writer's block staring at my laptop desktop. Or sleeping in my rental in a turnpike rest stop. Stuff in storage, living from a suitcase. Thinking this is how a silver spoon tastes? You can make a dream possible, but it'll never be easy no matter what you chase. If you wanna poke on, then do so. I'll do it for you, it's no crime. I'm like if the dude from Juno grew a Jufro and liked to rhyme. So tell me that I'm not a rapper. Tell Rudolph he can't pull sleighs. Tell Pluto it's not a planet, it'll probably keep spinning in the same old way. On and on, every day. Right around the sun, wanna feel the rays. You do it cause you love it like nothing else in the universe and get it's embedded in your DNA. What a guy. That boy goes so fast. That was fireworks by Watsky because you probably just saw a whole lot of fireworks this past week because it was, in fact, the 4th of July. So I just mentioned that I was in San Diego with some friends during the 4th of July. It was a five-day trip, nine-hour drive down there, nine-hour drive back. But really, we weren't going for the fireworks, all right? This was not some random off-the-cuff trip either. This trip had been in the works for a long time, and the 4th of July falling within these five days was purely a matter of coincidence because we were going for one reason and one reason alone and that was to visit Salvation Mountain. You probably don't know anything about Salvation Mountain from the people I've talked to. That seems to be like a pretty consistent trend. What is Salvation Mountain? What are you talking about? It's in the desert by San Diego. That's ridiculous and it is ridiculous but it's also really cool and you need to know about it. So I'm going to read you a little blurb about Salvation Mountain, the history of this sculpture from Salvation Mountain's website. It's just this really wild, weird, quirky monument, statue, mountain thing that was built by this artist named Leonard Knight. So here's the story. After arriving in Nyland, California, that's like real, real far south in the desert by San Diego, Leonard made several failed attempts to spread his message of love with a hot air balloon. Accepting defeat, he decided he would leave town, but first he would create a small statement. Days turned into weeks and weeks into months. Each day, Leonard would put a little more cement and a little more paint on the side of a forgotten riverbank. As his monument grew taller and taller, he would pack old junk he found at the dump onto the side of his, quote, mountain, fill it with sand, and cover it with cement and paint. Cement was hard to come by, so he would mix a lot of sand into it. Leonard's mountain soon grew to 50 feet and higher. I used to spend half a day at the dump to find half a gallon of paint, which was only half usable. One day after about four years of work, four years, with the instability of all the sand undermining its structure, the mountain fell down into a heap of rubble. Instead of being discouraged, Leonard thanked the Lord for showing him that the mountain wasn't safe. He vowed to start once again and to do it better. 
the second mountain. Leonard had been experimenting with the native adobe clay and had been using it on other parts of the mountain. Over the next several years, he rebuilt his mountain using adobe mixed with straw to hold it all together. It evolved into what it is today. As he fashions one part or another with clay, he coats it with paint. This keeps the wind and the rain from eroding it. The more paint, the thicker the coat, the better and stronger it becomes. People have come from all over with donations of paint. He uses it very liberally. Leonard estimates that he has painted well over 100,000 gallons of paint onto Salvation Mountain. Toxic Nightmare after 10 years of relentless toil, Leonard and his mountain began to gain some notoriety. It was especially noticed by the Imperial County Supervisors. Salvation Mountain, as it, has been, as it has come to be known, was at the entrance of Slab City, the Slabs, a community of snowbirds and local squatters occupying the old, dismantled, and abandoned Fort Dunlap World War II Marine Training Base. Only the concrete slabs of the buildings remained, thus the name Slab City. The land is owned by the state of California. A great many people came to be squatters at the slabs, where there was an impromptu flea market. The county warned, wanted to start collecting a user fee, and also thought that there might be a conflict with a, quote, religious monument at the entrance to a possible county ca campground. In July of 1994, the county's solution was to hire a toxic waste specialist to come out and take samples of the dirt around Leonard's Mountain to test for contaminants. Even before the test results were back, they cordoned off the area and labeled it a toxic nightmare. The tests predictably came back, claiming high amounts of lead in the soil. The county petitioned the state of California for funds to tear down the mountain and haul it away to a toxic waste disposal dump site in Nevada. Local residents, snowbirds, and members of the art community, including the art car community, did not want to see that happen to the mountain and their friend Leonard. Hundreds and hundreds of signatures were collected on circulated petitions. Thanks to the help of many old and new friends, Leonard dug soil samples and submitted them to an independent lab in San Diego for testing. The new tests revealed that there weren't high levels of any contaminants especially lead, at Salvation Mountain. The mountain stands today as a reward to the determination of many and the tenacity of one. In 1998, Leonard began experimenting with bales of straw and adobe. He got an idea to build a Hogan using these materials to insulate him from the 115 degree plus heat of the desert summers. He stacked the bales up to form a 10 foot high domed room. He covered the whole thing with adobe and painted and adorned it in his typical style. He never, however, moved into it, still preferring to live in his truck. Leonard kept adding onto the mountain, then creating the museum. It was an incredibly ambitious project. It is modeled after his original semi-inflated hot air balloon. It includes several large domed areas supported by, quote, trees that Leonard builds from old tires, wood scavenged from the surrounding desert, and adobe. And that's how it goes down. So that's the history that's listed on Salvation Mountain's website. And if you haven't seen it or you can't picture it, like, totally, you know, you can check out pictures online. It doesn't really do it justice, but it's it's very vibrant, very colorful. Like he says, you know, 100,000 gallons of paint and it's just this one guy's vision. And he passed away in 2014, but when we arrived there, there was a group of people who were sort of organizing it, leading it, overseeing the whole, like, you know, the visitors coming to this mountain. And they were part of this board that had been formed before his death to sort of continue his legacy and maintain the continuity of this ridiculous structure. So we talked to them. They gave us water. We bought them more water. We sang some songs with them. It was a pretty wild time. And uh, it was it was hot, let me tell you. It was 109 degrees outside. And, like, in Davis when it's 109 degrees, like, A, you're not outside for that long. B, that's, like, the hottest part of the summer, you know. And, like, C, there's shade, you know. Like, in, in the middle of the desert, there's there's none of that. The ground is just baking, and you, there's nowhere else to go but back into your air-conditioned car, you know. And, uh, like, some... Like, woman brought her, like, dog over to the mountain, and the people were like, no, this is too hot for your dog's feet. It was just pretty, it was pretty wild, and 
I don't know. It was it was a strange time. And then we we drove like maybe a mile down the road because some people recommended it to us. And we went into this little sort of, I don't know, weird sort of residential sculpture garden area where a lot of artists had just set up their projects on public display. And it was called East Jesus. And it was this whole area you could walk around again just right there in the desert. But all sorts of weird edgy statues and art pieces and instruments. I don't know. All sorts of stuff. It was a super cool place. And so that's what I did this past week, and that's what came the day after my 4th of July fun. So uh, I have a little song to play inspired by this Salvation Mountain experience. This is In Between by Beartooth.
You're still listening to Rocket Radio, and this show's still being broadcasted from KDRT 95.7 in Davis, California. And we over here at KDRT are feeling pretty good right about now. We want to thank everyone who donated to the Davis Media Access Spring Appeal. Because of your donations, Community Radio KDRT will continue to stay vibrant as a local media outlet serving Davis at 95.7 FM and the world at kdrt.org. Thanks again for your support. It is summertime, if you couldn't tell from the ridiculous heat right outside. And summertime is good for a lot of things, but it's especially good for catching up on your reading list, making yourself a little summer reading list, and then reading, you know, maybe half of one book and calling it successful. It's like, you know, sort of a small version of New Year's resolutions, you know, but it's summer. Like, there's there's no disappointment. There's no, there's no failing in these resolutions. It's just completing some of it, you know? Make yourself a reading list. And that's what I did. And so I, uh, finally finished a book that I'd been reading for like forever. It took me a long time, but it was the autobiography of Malcolm X. Started it a while ago and just wrapped it up. It was real good. I really enjoyed reading this book. Uh, I thought it was real informative and a really interesting look into this, you know, super contentious figure. And uh, one of the parts that interested me most, I'm going to share with you, it was when he talks about the March on Washington. Um, And I think like there are lots of interesting parts of the books that I could have shared with you. I just think this part jumped out because it's uh, such a clear criticism. It's very, like, concise of such a, you know, important and also revered moment in U.S. history. So here we go. This is from the autobiography of Malcolm X. Not long ago, the black man in America was fed a dose of another form of the weakening, lulling, and, delud- lulling and deluding effects of so-called integration. It was that farce on Washington, I call it. The idea of a mass of blacks marching on Washington was originally the brainchild of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, A. Philip Randolph. For 20 or more years, the March on Washington idea had floated around among Negroes and spontaneously, suddenly now that idea caught on. Overall, rural southern Negroes, small-town Negroes, northern ghetto Negroes, and even thousands of previously Uncle Tom Negroes began talking March. Nothing since Joe Louis had so coalesced the masses of Negroes. Groups of Negroes were talking of getting to Washington any way they could, in rickety old cars, on buses, hitchhiking, walking even if they had to. They envisioned thousands of black brothers converging together upon Washington to lie down in the streets, on airport runways, on government lawns, demanding of the Congress and the White House some concrete civil rights action. This was a national bitterness, militant, unorganized, and leaderless. Predominantly, it was young Negroes, defiant of whatever might be the consequences, sick and tired of the black man's neck under the white man's heel. The white man had plenty of good reasons for nervous worry. The right spark, some unpredictable emotional chemistry, could set off a black uprising. The government knew that thousands of milling angry blacks not only could completely disrupt Washington, but they could erupt in Washington. The White House speedily invited in the major civil rights Negro leaders. They were asked to stop the planned march. They truthfully said they hadn't begun it. They had no control over it. The idea was national, spontaneous, unorganized, and leaderless. In other words, it was a black powder keg. Any student of how integration can weaken the black man's movement was about to observe a master lesson. The White House, with a fanfare of international publicity, approved, endorsed, and welcomed a march on Washington. The big civil rights organizations right at this time had been publicly squabbling about donations. The New York Times had broken the story. The the NAACP had charged that the other agencies' demonstrations, highly publicized, had attracted a major part of the civil rights donations, while the NAACP got left holding the bag, supplying costly bail and legal talent for the other organizations' jailed demonstrators. 
It was like a movie. The next scene was the, quote, big six civil rights Negro leaders meeting in New York City with the white head of a big philanthropic society. They were told that their money wrangling in public was damaging their image, and a reported $800,000 was donated to a united civil rights leadership council that was quickly organized by the big six. Now, what had instantly achieved black unity? The white man's money. What string was attached to the money? Advice. Not only was there this donation, but another comparable sum was promised for some time later on after the march, obviously if it all went well. The original angry march on Washington was now about to be entirely changed. Massive international publicity projected the Big Six as March on Washington leaders. It was news to those angry grassroots Negroes steadily adding steam to their march plans. They probably assumed that now those famous leaders were endorsing and joining them. Invited next to join the march were four famous white public figures, one Catholic, one Jew, one Protestant, and one labor boss. The massive publicity now gently hinted that the Big Ten would supervise the March on Washington's mood and its direction. The four white figures began nodding. The word spread fast among so-called liberal Catholics, Jews, Protestants, and laborites. It was democratic to join this black march. And suddenly, the previously march-nervous whites began announcing they were going. It was as if electrical current shot through the ranks of bourgeois Negroes, the very so-called middle-class and upper-class who had earlier been deploring the March on Washington talk by grassroots Negroes. But white people now, now they were going to march. Why some downtrodden, jo jobless, hungry Negro might have gotten trampled. Those integration-mad Negroes practically ran over each other trying to find out where to sign up. The angry blacks march suddenly had begun to, had been made chic. Suddenly, it had a Kentucky Derby image. For the status seeker, it was a status symbol. Were you there? You can hear that right today. It had become an outing, a picnic. The morning of the march, any rickety carloads of angry, dusty, sweating small-town Negroes would have gotten lost among the chartered jet planes, railroad cars, and air-conditioned buses. What originally was planned to be an angry riptide, one English newspaper aptly described now as the gentle flood. Talk about integrated. It was like salt and pepper. And by now, there wasn't a single logistics aspect uncontrolled. The marchers had been instructed to bring no signs. Signs were provided. They had been told to sing one song, We Shall Overcome. They had been told how to arrive, when, where to arrive, where to assemble, when to start marching, the route to march. First aid stations were strategically located, even where to faint. Yes, I was there. I observed that circus. Whoever heard of angry revolutionists all harmonizing We Shall Overcome someday while tripping and swaying along arm and arm with the very people they were supposed to be angrily revolting against? Whoever heard of angry revolutionists swinging their bare feet together with their oppressor in lily pad park pools with gospels and guitars and I have a dream speeches? And the black masses in America were, and still are, having a nightmare. These angry revolutionists even followed their final instructions to leave early. With all of those thousands upon thousands of angry revolutionists, so few stayed over that the next morning the Washington Hotel Association reported a costly loss in empty rooms. Hollywood couldn't have topped it. In a subsequent press poll, not one congressman or senator with a previous record of opposition to civil rights said he had changed his views. What did anyone expect? How is a one-day integrated picnic going to counter-influence these representatives of prejudice rooted deep in the psyche of the American white man for 400 years? The very fact that millions, black and white, believed in this monumental farce is another example of how much this country goes in for the surface, glossing over the escape ruse surfaces, instead of truly dealing with its deep-rooted problems. What that march on Washington did do was lull Negroes for a while, but inevitably, the black masses started realizing they had been smoothly hoaxed again by the white man, and inevitably, the black man's anger rekindled deeper than ever, and there began bursting out in different cities in the long hot summer of 1964 unprecedented racial crises. 
That was an excerpt from the autobiography of Malcolm X on the March on Washington. And that's all the time we have for today's show. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Rocket Radio. This show is being broadcasted live from KDRT 95.7 in Davis, California. This next song is Wake Up by Rage Against the Machine. Listen out and see if you can spot the little Malcolm X reference in it. Keep my mind.